back with the Looking Glass Forum, and we are here keeping the faith, reminding you that the truth is censored, the lies are boldly published, and enemies of political liberty and freedom of conscience are at the gates. Remember, the lies are many, the truth is one. So, welcome back to the Looking Glass Forum, and I really want to get into a very interesting subject matter here. And it goes back to the question of how did we arrive as a human culture without any guidance, without any understanding of who we are and how we arrived here within existence. So history takes on a grand sweeping scale and we can't just pick and choose the aspects of history that are available, that we like, that fit neatly into the puzzle that we would like it to fit into. There are a lot of aspects of history that are dangerous that are forbidden, that are unknown. And this is for a reason. There are consequences to beginning to explore these different arenas. And when you start to realize that the occult world, esoteric world, offers a great deal of gnosis or secret knowledge, knowledge that's not available to the rest of the world, sacred knowledge that will enlighten and change your perspective. And that's what we're, we're, we're trying to understand here. We're trying to grasp what it is that a lot of these secret societies, a lot of these esoteric clubs, these mystery schools, if you will, what is their treatment of facts? What is their contribution to the historical framework that isn't immediately apparent to the rest of us? We're not initiated. We're goyim. We're outsiders. We haven't been given the light. So we're we're just in the darkness of chaos. So this sense of duality, this this return again and again within occultism to the dual nature of black and white, light and dark, male and female. It really comes from Babylon and Egypt. And as we'll look and we extend our understanding of history a little deeper, we'll see that at the root of all this is the archetypal and monolithic picture of the Tower of Babel, which is a biblical prophetic imagery, if you will. It's a, a Bible story. It carries with it a profound moral. And far more ancient than Aesop's fables, these morals have to tell us a story. And so we don't have to turn religious, try to comprehend the Tower of Babel. We have to understand that Tower of Babel represents symbolically or literally connection and a way of understanding our past. In Freemasonry, the Tower of Babel is prominent. In the Middle East, in architecture, in Islam, this concept of the Tower of Babel. And if you go back to Babylonian, ancient Babylonian history, we'll see that Nineveh, Babel are real cities. And there are real cities in Iraq, and there are places that archaeologists are starting to unlock the secrets. But a lot of this occult knowledge that we're going to put forward, I cannot personally go back in a time machine and review all these facts of history. But what I can do is I can unveil for you these concepts that would otherwise remain unknown and show you how crucial they are in the lives and in the minds of others. So people who are Bible believers are going to believe the veracity of the historical accounts and scriptures. Freemasons who believe in the esoteric revelation of secret knowledge are going to believe con the constructs and the accounts in a symbolic way of the Tower of Babel. Muslims who believe in the Quran and who believe in certain aspects of biblical history and, and they see it in their own light and who also have their own secret societies like the Shriners who are connected with Freemasons but they're Muslims, they're Muslim Freemasons. And they wear the red fez. With the red fez was all the Muslims destroyed all the Crusaders and they dipped their hats in the blood of the infidels and they wore the red, the red blood of the Christians who were murdered, Christian Crusaders, they wore that on their head. That's where you get the, the fez today. 
So, and if you go into Wicca and different occult groups that are centered on witchcraft, the Order of the Eastern Stars coming to mind, one of the most prominent esoteric Freemason groups, which is all women and focusing on craft, the esoteric craft. Uh, the connotation of witchcraft is a little bit strong. It presupposes that they're doing some kind of malevolent magic or something. It kind of harkens back to our own superstitions, but the Order of the Eastern Stars is really practicing an esoteric Gnostic practice. They have a secret knowledge. Okay. So as we're looking back at the unfolding of history, we have to realize that there were certain centers of civilization, certain centers of pagan religious development in Egypt, in Babylon, in Rome, in Alexandria, which was established by Alexander the Great, and later was Constantinople after Constantine. So this, this switch from Greek imperialism of Alexander over to the Roman imperialism of Constantine as he takes on Popery, the head bishopric of Rome, he's going to become the first pope. So Constantinople, he would move his center of power from Rome in the west over to Constantinople in the east. Later on, Muslims would come with their armies and they would destroy Constantinople and they would call it Istanbul. And that's where it is today in Turkey, in Istanbul. So you can see this really interesting development of history needs to be understood more correctly. And in order to kind of grasp the current way of understanding the way that you would hear it if you had an average college history course, the prevalent knowledge, the available conceptual basis for our understanding of history is not complete. So we need to go back and take a closer look here. And in here we're going to listen to this discussion about Islam and the Crusades. And it spells out for us a very simplified version of events that's unhampered by the complexity of the true history. So in Europe, it's controlled by all the European kings who have been blessed and coronated with crowns by papal legates who are there to do the magic, do the, the Vatican Christian Christian ritual of informing the populace on who is to be the proper and rightful king who has the power of the of the divine behind him, the holy city of Rome, and the prevailing ignorance and illiteracy and the lack of, of knowledge during the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages is understood. People aren't going to travel. They're not going to leave their, their little hamlet. They're not going to leave their field or their, their town their entire lives. Maybe some kings would be privileged to travel to other cities or go around Europe. Few people would have the ability to travel outside their own realm of Christendom over into the other areas of the world, areas dominated by Islam, or before the 7th century, they would be dominated by Zoroastrianism and other various customs and practices. Paganism that were being, they were carrying over, like Mithraism, which was being carried over from the ancient pagan world. And they were in this transition period in the 7th century. And we would see the rise of Muhammad, who would take control of the entire Arab Peninsula and, and rearrange, and basically destroy Zoroastrianism and take all those people and put them into the camp of Islam and create this new religion. So how did that happen? That's really where we're at. How do we end up with crusade wars where the Pope had to marshal soldiers to go and try to stop the invasion of the Muslim, the Ottoman, the Turkish, if you will, forces that were highly developed, highly advanced. After all, Islam created algebra. That's an Islamic word isn't it? Algebra. So their advances in geometry and math were advanced, were, were extensive. Like the Greeks, they took geometry to a whole new level. And, and, and in the West, scientific, mathematical, 
and technological advances are relatively halted, but suddenly after the, the appearance of the new Islamic religion, they would use their military might to absorb, conquer whole other cultures and absorb their information, their scholars, their learned men, their doctors, their teachers. All the advancements that they were making within their local realms were assimilated into this new Islamic civilization. So we're going to listen to an interesting video here, and we're going to take a look at how our prevailing concept of Christendom, Roman Christianity versus Arab Islamic religious government. That's really comes down to. So these are very different factions who are trying to achieve power, but they're very similar factions too because they're almost identical. So that's what we're going to discover here in this episode. So yeah, this idea that it was just some random imperialistic slaughter fest in the Middle East, uh, you know, Christians just woke up one morning and said, hey, let's go and, um, you know, behead some people uh, far overseas. This is, um, it's criminal, literally it's criminal intellectual dishonesty, because uh, let's, let's start with the basics. Of course, Christianity, originally a Middle Eastern uh, religion, and if you look at the Middle East now, not a whole lot of Christians left, and that should be the first clue that what you're being told might not be 100% true. Yeah, and to preface what I'm about to say, uh, you want to see a progressive's head explode? Point out to them that the first what I great... For. <laughs> point out to them that the first great slave-holding nation in the history of the, of the world was a African society, right? Egypt. Let them know that. All this uh, black Athena stuff that we got in the 70s, the idea that uh, Greek culture and Egyptian culture was primarily a black culture stolen by white people, as a way of sort of legitimizing uh, cultures prior to Western culture as being legitimate cultures that were run by black people. Fine, I'm willing to give you Egypt, even though, of course, we know uh, Northern e uh, Africa is much different than Southern Africa. Let's give uh, these progressives Egypt, because welcome to the club. You were the first great slaveholding people in the history of the world, uh, Africans then. And if you want to argue that Africans were black people, I don't think it's true, but if you want to make that argument, uh, then you, African Americans, if you would want to call it that, in this country have to recognize that slavery first started with them. And oh, there's, slaves, there's open-air slave markets now in Libya. They, they've emerged in Libya. Some of the migrants being snatched up. The women are being raped uh, and sold. Is, and where, where are all the people who are anti-slavery? No, no, no. The important thing is what happened among 4 or 5% of whites uh, and a lot of blacks, slave owners, in America 150 years ago. That's the only, only important thing uh, about slavery. The fact that it's currently going on in Libya uh, apparently doesn't matter because you can't guilt Libyans into giving you money. So, okay. <laughs> we'll come back to slavery because, uh, uh, you know, historical Islam and slavery is uh, something that is a little bit um, under... Uh, under examined. So, so before the Islamic conquests began, and we're talking, of course, uh, Islam developed in the Middle East in the early 7th century. We're going back, back, baby, you know, 1300, 1400 years. So 622, Islam begins to develop and conquers most of the Middle East and North Africa within 80 years. Now, this is a big thing. Before Islam, the Middle East, you know, there's, there's Christians, there's uh, Jews, Zoroastrians, Arab polytheists, and uh, Greco-Roman civilization, and, and so on. So, it was a multicultural mosaic, you know, multiculturalism can be a good thing, multicultural mosaic, and then Islam came along and was initially somewhat peaceful, trying to convert by the word rather than the sword, and then seemed to, um, well, 
not stay the course, so to speak, and became fairly aggressively expansionist. Right. In the middle of the 7th century, like you said, uh, 600 plus years after uh, Christ, you have Muhammad, who looks around the world surrounding him, and he sees primarily Jewish and Christian peoples. And so what Muhammad does is he takes a lot from the Old Testament, takes a lot from the New Testament, takes a little bit from the old Persian mythologies, and creates a religion with, uh, that centers him as the prophet. Uh, and within his lifetime, before he was even dead, uh, the warmongering, the, the colonial ambitions of Islam had really come to dominate. People who want to talk about the correct crusades, and we're talking about the 10th and 11th, 12th centuries. We're talking here as early as the 8th century, as early as 732 AD, uh, within a hundred years of, of the founding of Islam, you have the famous Battle of Tours, where Islamic armies, the Umayyad Caliphate, people don't know this, the Umayyad Caliphate was the fifth largest empire in the history of the world. Within a hundred years of, of, of Muhammad's birth, you had the fifth largest empire ever to, to walk the earth, had conquered Spain, was turned at all of the northern African coasts, had conquered much of what we call Syria and Palestine today. Sicily, and was for almost 300 Sicily. years. Sicily, they ran the, the Muslims ran a caliphate in Sicily for almost 300 years. Absolutely. And so within 100 years, by 732 AD, Spain had been conquered, and Islam was uh, uh, trying to take France. And so that's when you have the famous uh, Battle of Tours, led by Charles Martel, right? Our English history, our, our European history reminds us, Charles Martel in Latin, the word means Charles the Hammer. And what he did is he systematically pushed the, uh, the Islamic invaders out of France. So in other words, for about 400 years, before there was a single European crusade to the Holy Land, you had all of the major battles between Islam and Christianity fought on Christian territory by encroaching Islamic armies that were not the least interested in peace or coexistence. It took four centuries for Europeans to take the battle to Jerusalem. Let that sink in for a second. It was a 400-year war before a single battle was fought on Islamic territory. And that tells us something, right? That it's not that the Europeans were being reactionary or they were sending crusader armies simply for loot and plunder. This was an existential struggle for the survival of Europe. It wasn't Europeans trying to conquer Islamic territory. It was exactly the opposite. Well, it's like getting someone out of your home who's a home invader and suddenly you're the aggressor. So, yeah, let's just remember this. The first Muslim empire, right, the Rashidun Caliphate, nine million square miles at its, at its height. That's about the same size of modern-day uh, America. The second, as you pointed out, the Umayyad Caliphate, one and a half times larger. That's 15 million square kilometers, which is close to the size of modern-day Russia. And if you want to compare that, you know, the Roman Empire, remember how bad and colonialistic and imperialistic the Roman Empire was, model for the Star Destroyer these days, it seems. So the Roman Empire, after 800 years in its prime, 5 million square kilometers, one-third the size of the largest, the second Muslim Empire. And it took 800 years, Second Muslim Empire, what, about 100 years or so. So very expansionistic, very aggressive, and very uh, it very thoroughly subjugated uh, Christians or non-Muslims within its uh, borders, right? You had uh, Christian heavy taxes, 20%, which was enormous back in the day, imposed upon Christians. A lot of people had to convert or face uh, true financial ruin. Uh, and there was a lot of this convert or die stuff that went on back in the day, uh, and uh, it did not spread necessarily by the force of its arguments or the persuasiveness of its theology. And so when this sudden, a very brutal and expansionistic ideology has emerged and is spreading across the known world at the time, 
then when, when the Christians decide to fight back and retake their lands, uh, suddenly they are the aggressors. I mean, it's almost like it's almost like uh, the the uh, the non-Christians have been in charge of uh, historical teachings. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. And let's let's be very clear. I, I don't like to look back at history, especially history a thousand years old, and try to pick moral winners and losers in the sense that we must recognize that the Europeans weren't doing nothing when, when Islam came along. They were warring amongst themselves, right? You had Christian uh, emerging Christian nation-states warring with other Christian nation-states and with pagan nation-states. So uh, the idea that somehow uh, we go back now history, whether it's 100 years ago or 200 years ago to the Founding Fathers or 1,000 years ago to the Crusades, and what we're doing is we're projecting our liberal values back on history. What we don't like today, what we in our enlightened benevolences have come to reject, that has to be the filter, the only filter through which we see history. So to be good historians, I think what we need to do is recognize that everybody, there was not a culture in the whole wide world that was not militaristic. There were no peaceable cultures. You could you could cite various sects, for instance, of Christianity or, or, or Buddhism uh, that eschewed violence, but they were part of a larger movement that was protected by military might. As certainly with Christianity, that was true. Judaism, it was true. All the major religions. So war was the norm. Conquering territory was the norm. We recognize that now as a bad thing, but for them, they didn't. So judging them first and foremost, whether it's just judging the Islamic crusaders or judging the, the European crusaders, uh, simply by the politically correct lens of war is bad, John and Yoko, let's all sit around and sing Kumbaya, judging history by that lens, this is what the Soviets did, the, uh, the Marxist dialectic in history. Rewrite history so it's favorable to your political cause, revisionist history. Having said that, you go back to the, to the actual uh, combat, the actual uh, wars in, uh, from the creation of Islam in the 7th century all the way through about, really it wasn't until about 1500, 1571, if you want to talk about the Battle of Lepanto, which really finally, once and for all, pushed uh, Islam back, uh, the Ottoman Empire back to Asia, more or less. Uh, we're talking about 700 years of almost continual war, most of which time uh, Europe was spent as uh, on the, uh, the, the, the victim side. Europe was being invaded, European ships were being harassed uh, by sea and by land. And people don't recognize when I ask my kids about Dracula, right? it's all goofy horror stuff. But they have no idea of the Battle of Turgoviste, right? Uh, how, how Vlad, Vlad II of Wallachia, how he became Count Dracula, right? And Vlad the Impaler. But impaling, simply taking your enemies and spitting them on long, tall spears so that they would bloodily ooze down the spear and die a horrible death. It's interesting, right? Vlad has been given the... He was the, the Wallachian prince who fought back the Ottoman invaders to Transylvania, to Eastern Europe. Uh, he's called that the impaler simply because he did what the Muslims were doing. Impaling was a Muslim form of punishment. When Muslim armies conquered Christians, they impaled them, man, woman, and child. Uh, they, they pierced them with spears. They let them writhe on those spears till they died. And so all Vlad did was when he finally defeated the encroaching Muslims, is he gave them a taste of their own medicine. And so forever on in history, again, he's the impaler, and there's no mention of the barbarity and cruelty of the Turkish attackers. Well, this is the important thing to remember, that for the past 50 years, maybe a little bit longer, it has been a relentless hostility coming out of academia and the media and, and Hollywood and just about everything that is uh, culturally available as a weapon against traditional Western values, Christian values, uh, free market values, and so on. Because, of course, the story of colonialism is that 
Only white Europeans practiced it, and they brutalized third world countries who were entirely justified and right in throwing off the shackles of Western colonialism and imperialism. However, when Europe gets colonized by Islam uh, in the past, well, it's really, really bad, you see, for Europeans and Christians to fight back and throw off the shackles of Islamic uh, imperialism. Although, I think it could be safely said that if you wanted to live under an imperialistic power, you probably wanted to choose 19th century England rather than, say, 9th century Islam. So, this is just something to remember. There's this prejudice, there's this bigotry, to some degree racism, anti-Western, anti-Christian, anti-freedom, um, cancer really running through the narratives of history that have uh, evolved over the past half century. Yeah, we hear about the evils of British colonialism all the time. This is the bias you're talking about. And yet, as bad as the British were, uh, think about the entire uh, Hindu custom of the untouchable, right, for about a thousand years. An entire class, like the overwhelming majority of the population of, of India was considered uh, untouchable. You couldn't touch them. They were diseased, right? Uh, they were left in squalor and poverty and misery. Whatever you say about the British, uh, they ended a lot of that stuff. And this is the other thing. You know, it drives them nuts when you point out that if we recognize, and, and you have to recognize this, because this is how the left wins these arguments, by cutting us off from the totality of history. Let's just focus on the evils of the West, the evils of the white male, the evils of the British or the Christian or the American soldier versus the Indian. That's how they do it. If you understand, if we understand and accept the premise that colonialism, genocide, oppression, tyranny, these were aspects of almost every single human culture that's ever been around. We accept that historically unalterably true premise. Then it makes their heads explode when you point out, so they're really mad progressives, that the West just did what everybody else was doing better, right? They Not only did they invent better, not only did they create better, they, con they conquered better, right? Let's just admit that. And if you admit that, uh, I love what Dinesh D'Souza, right, who was uh, obviously born in India, uh, Indian parentage, he has a wonderful article he wrote a few years back. It's called Two Cheers for Colonialism. It, I can't quite go three, D'Souza says, because of course there were oppression, of course there was tyranny, but how much better off am I is the Indian continent, for instance, because uh, that the, the British, for all of their um, uh, methodical ways and, and their occasional brutality, were much, much better conquerors, much, much better rulers. Uh, you could have had Gandhi in the old uh, Indian system, right? But you could have had him in British those British law schools that he went to as a colonialist who visited England, right? So that has to be acknowledged as well. There is a direct uh, statistical correlation between a history of British colonial rule and present-day economic and political freedoms, as well as uh, higher standards of living. Uh, you can One way you know in which a... a um, uh, a sort of colonial occupation is somewhat benevolent is just look at the birth rates. Look at the total population of the country. If the population of the country is going up, it's not that bad. If you look at, you know, the history uh, prior to Islamic conquest, just look at North Africa. North Africa used to be Christian. I mean, it was the home of, of St. Augustine and, and St. Felicity, Perpetua, the, 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 the martyrs and so on. Uh, it, it was central, North Africa, central to the development of Christian tradition and, and thought. And within one generation after the Prophet's death, it had fallen to Islam. And uh, there used to be, in, it used to be an entire Christian civilization, North Africa. How many are left? Where, where did they go? What happened? Their population certainly didn't increase under the, their new colonial rulers. Well, Rome, a lot of people don't recognize, Rome, uh, Northern Africa 
provided a number of Rome's emperors. A, 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 a surprisingly significant number of Roman emperors actually were born in northern Africa. Uh, and so the idea perfectly in the heart of Western culture. And yeah, I think that's exactly right, that we, the progressive way of looking at history now, and you can see it in American history school books with the, I call it the Howard Zinnification of American history. Howard Zinn was a, a, a radical Marxist historian in the 1970s and 80s who created a people's history of the United States, which was focused exclusively on uh, lower class Marxist arguments, right? Forget the achievers, forget civilization, forget military history. Let's talk about who loses in Western culture, who loses because of capitalism and free markets. Our kids for about 40 years in American schools have been learning the Marxist-Zinn version of history. And in that view of history, things like socialism, Islam, uh, non-Western empires, non-Western slavery, that's all whitewashed, right, to magnify America's sin. While my students are absolutely staggered when I point out to them that Indian tribes, Native American tribes like the Cheyenne and the Comanche actually had black slaves and in some instances had African slaves beyond the Civil War when after the Emancipation Proclamation. It's a staggering thing for them to have to comprehend and no one's ever pointed it out to them before. Well, I mean, the native, the indigenous population in America, they, they found torture pits with 500 skeletons brutally uh, tortured to death. Uh, yeah, they owned and collected slaves, which brutal war against each other. You know, it's back to this. We, we should do another show on the Rousseauian noble savage myth, but uh, we'll do that another time. But no, they were, you know, Stone Age and, and as brutal as one uh, can imagine. So, so this is important, right? There were five major Christian capitals in the Middle East. And by the end of the seventh century, three of those five had been taken over by, by Muslims. Constantinople, besieged twice by Muslims. Uh, Rome was attacked and its holy shrines were, were pillaged. And so this encroachment, this attack, this, this, this tide of brutality coming out of the Muslim world in the, um, at the end of the seventh century was alarming and was a, a constant focus of Christian thought. How are we going to defend ourselves against this violent and expansionistic uh, belief system? Yeah, and you know the the, the, co the consequences of this way of arguing of of I found myself in university context being labeled racist simply for trying to point out these broader truths of history. This is not about. Muslims. Muslims are, you know, Muslims today are under siege by Western culture. If, if uh, warmongering presidents didn't treat Islam so bad, we would have never had 9-11. It's this absolute unwillingness to go back and look at the historical origins of all these conflicts. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of our talk, uh, there are almost no Christians in the Middle East whatsoever, right? What you do have is the one Jewish state of Israel, surrounded by about 2 billion Muslims, uh, a state of about 6 million people, surrounded by 2 billion Muslims. It's the only democracy in the entire area. And the, uh, the entire world narrative is, is that it's an illegitimate state that must be eradicated uh, it, because somehow that one little entity is, is oppressing Muslims worldwide. It, it's, it's, it's that same argument applied back to the Crusades. We're going to magnify the sins of one group uh, so reprehensibly and completely ignore uh, how the rest of uh, the, the so-called oppressed power is being treated. Right. And so the news of Christian suffering under the Muslim rulers, of course, we've got to remember it was... Uh, Far, far from the age of TCPIP, and so news traveled slowly, and in particular around the late 10th and early 11th century, uh, there was a Muslim emperor ordered the persecution and forced conversion of many Christians in his uh, empire. 
and they destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Sepulchre sorry, in Jerusalem, the most revered church in the Christian world. And so once this church had been uh, destroyed, and of course, you know, think of, of Islam sensitive to how the Quran uh, is treated. Well, this is the most holy uh, church in, in Christendom, destroyed, and, and the um, forced conversions of Christians and so on. And of course, pilgrims wanted to go to the Holy Land, um, and similar to the, the Mecca journey. And so it did actually reach uh, the Christian West, like Europe, where, of course, Europe had spread, uh, sorry, Christianity had spread into Europe faster in some ways because it was being driven out of the Middle East. You know, the refugees that we see now that are coming across the Mediterranean into Europe, of which only 2% are Syrian war refugees, but that's a topic for another time. The fleeing the war, the Christians moved into uh, Europe partly because they were being driven out of the Middle East by uh, by Muslim conquests. And so there was this idea of where does this stop? Where do we stop and, and draw the line and begin to fight back? Now, it did, of course, happen when the Muslims had come uh, very, very far into Europe, as you point out, I mean, central uh, Italy and, and Sicily and Spain and, and they're starting into France. Bulgaria, it took over 1,100 years to free Bulgaria from Muslim rule. So that is a long time, frankly, even in historical standards, that's a long time. And so there was this sense is if we don't stop it now, we can't live in the ocean and that's where we're going to end up. That's a great point. You mentioned how fleeing Christians, Christians fleeing from Islamic ty uh, tyranny, uh, it radically enhanced Christian life in the West. That great movement we call the Renaissance only got started after Byzantine Eastern Christians, Eastern Orthodox Christians, who saw the fall of Constantinople, who saw their culture swallowed up by advancing Ottoman armies. When they brought Came, came to the West, when they came to Venice, when they came to Italy, bringing with them the great contents of the library at Alexandria, right? That, that ancient Greek library at Alexandria. All of these Greek ancient books now were in the hands of European Renaissance scholars, and it completely transformed culture. So, right, the, the idea that what was advancing was barbaric and backwards. Educationally, look at it in terms of art. I mean, right, the, the Quranic uh, prohibitions against representational art, particularly of religious subjects, versus uh, medieval and Christian ability uh, to paint sacred truths, and how one artistic culture flourished under a, a different understanding of God. So I'm going to hold it right there. But it brings us up to really the most interesting and salient point that I'm trying to arrive at as we're going through this episode. And that is that the, the Islamic conquest of Byzantium and Constantinople forced the fall of the leg of the Roman Empire being collapsed, forced all the aristocracy and the wealth and the culture and the intellectual development and knowledge to shift back to the West. So the the eastern leg of the empire is now falling, and the center of power is now once again once again going to be Rome. And that's really the kind of integral part of the whole mystery that we're trying to really focus on here. And that is really the origins of Islam and the nature of the actual doctrinal and revelatory gnosis that wound up in the hands of Muhammad and the genesis of the different wealth and military forces that came together that allowed him to create Islam through a series of forced conversions and wholesale butcheries. There were several whole entire cities that they beheaded, upwards of 10,000 men. So this was the kind of barbarity and butchery that was behind the energy and the impetus of Muhammad.
That discussion that we were just listening to by Stefan Molino, the real history of the Crusades, has an interesting guest on there talking about that. We'll get back to that in a little while, but we need to take a minute to explore the subject a little bit deeper here. So we're going to listen to another audio, and this is a discussion by Tom Holland on the origins of Islam. So I think his critical point of view is going to be important and essential for us to kind of understand the kind of mystical initiation gnosis, the hidden meaning, the secret symbol and the secret doctrine that is laid out in our discussion today. We need to kind of immerse ourselves back in the time and the period and the place and understand the context of the different geopolitical and religio-political, social and civilizational dynamics that are unfolding. So let's have a listen. Let's hope we pull through. Um, of course, I mean, there is, there is indisputably a faint whiff of controversy about what I want to talk about today, which essentially is to look at the origins of Islam, which in a sense means the origins of the Quran, as history. So not in terms of, of, of what Muslims traditionally have believed, but about what the historical record seems to me to tell us about how and why Islam came into existence. And the reason that um, I'm interested in this, I, I did not have a particular interest in Islam, but I did have an interest in the Roman Empire. And the rise of Islam is also the story of the fall of the Roman Empire in the East. Um, of course, the Roman Empire in the West, including Rome, falls in the 5th century AD. But in the eastern half, it continues to go strong. From It is ruled from uh, the new Rome, the second Rome, the city founded by the first Christian empire, emperor of Rome, Constantine, Constantinople. And although we perhaps think of this eastern Roman empire as Byzantium, we call it the Byzantine empire, that is not what the people who lived in Constantinople called it. They called it the Roman Empire. They saw themselves as Roman, albeit that they did it in Greek. They called themselves the Romeoi. So as well as being the heirs of Rome, there's a sense in which the Eastern Roman Empire in the 6th century AD is the heir of classical Greece as well. So in the Eastern Mediterranean in the 6th century AD, it looks like the ancient world. The Greeks, the Romans, they're still going strong. And looking at the Fertile Crescent, so towards Iraq, towards Iran, there also the world looks recognisably ancient because the great enemy of Rome in the 6th century AD, as it had been for 300 years, is a Persian empire the uh, Persian Empire ruled by the House of Sasan, so it's called the Sasanian Empire. And this Persian Empire is self-consciously the heir of um, the first Persian Empire, the empire of uh, Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes, who had fought the Greeks at, at Thermopylae and Salamis. And that empire, in turn, was raised on foundations laid by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians, going right the way back to Samaria, to the very origins, really, of urban civilization in the Near East. So the combination of these two great empires, the Roman and the Persian, still going strong in the 6th century AD, it makes the world look like antiquity, like the ancient world. 
And then the traditional sense of what happens is that in the 7th century, everything changes. The traditional story is that a prophet emerges, he preaches a new religion, the Arabs erupt out of the desert, they've got the Quran in one hand, they've got the sword in the other. They always sort of, you know, that image, I always wonder how on earth did they then ride their camels if they were doing that? Um, and basically, before you can say Allahu Akbar, um, the conquered provinces of the Roman and the Persian Empire in the Middle East have been transformed into um, state sets from the Arabian Nights. Uh, and the Middle East has suddenly, kind of overnight, like switching on a light switch, has become medieval, it's become Muslim. And I think there is always in history a kind of temptation to imagine that things do change very, very rapidly. And it may be that, um, so things like the inauguration last week, it kind of gives you the sense that um, everything, you know, Donald Trump comes in, Obama goes out, everything changes. But of course, you know that it doesn't. The continuities are, in a sense, far more significant than the changes. And going right the way back through American history, you can see that, that before and after the Civil War, profound changes, and yet the continuities are, in a sense, even more significant. Um, likewise with uh, the uh, American Revolution, the continuity. I mean, that's why I can talk to you in English, after all. Um, and so we, we, I think, you know, when, when you pause to think about that, you recognise that. And so you, it, it, it seems apparent that this idea that with what people call the coming of Islam, beginning of the 7th century, everything changes, cannot be true. The process must have been a much, much longer one, much more protracted and complex one. But if that's the case, why do we have this sense so strongly that the coming of Islam changed everything, that it was a, an absolute rupture? Well, I think, I think the answer to that, essentially, is the incredible potency of what Muslims have come to believe about the origin of their faith. Because it's really the stories that Muslims tell about how Islam came into being that provide the defining template for our understanding of this period. Um, so that even non-Muslims, up until about 40 or 50 years ago, tended to take the traditional Muslim account of how Islam came into being for granted. And the story is a very powerful one. AD 610, by the, the Christian calendar, it is said, a merchant named Muhammad in a cave above a remote and arid cave, uh, city named Mecca in the depths of the Arabian desert heard something as terrifying as it was awesome. The voice of an angel. And that voice delivered to him direct and unmediated, a revelation from God. And it was the first in a whole series of revelations that would be delivered to Muhammad over the course of his lifetime. And these revelations bundled together would become the Quran, the holy text of this new emergent faith of Islam. And to Muslims, the divine origin of the Quran 
was manifest in the circumstances by which it came into being. The fact that it had been given supernaturally was the great foundational miracle of this new faith. Now, it is true, I think, that were you to read the Quran and not know this backstory, it would not be immediately obvious, I think, that the only explanation for how it came into being was that it had been delivered by an angel. Um, there are quite a lot of elements within the Quran that point to its emergent from pre-existent religions and cultures. For instance, it is um, full of characters from the Bible, both the Jewish and the Christian Bible. Um, Moses is mentioned 137 times in the Quran. The Virgin Mary is featured more prominently in the Quran than she is in the New Testament. It features as well a number of episodes drawn from the history of the Roman Empire and the culture of the Roman Empire. It describes uh, a story of um, seven Christians who go to sleep in a cave uh, to escape the persecution, wake up, uh, discover that a hundred years have gone by and the whole world has become Christian. This story, distorted, appears in the Quran. There is even a mention of Alexander the Great. So I think that if you read the Quran and you do not know the backstory, you would think this is recognisably a text that has emerged from a given place and a given time. But there's a problem in, 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 in following through the implications of that because of what Muslims tell us about how the Quran came into being. Because what the key factor about the traditional account is that Muhammad receives his first revelations in Mecca. And Mecca stands as a fabulous remove from the world of the Roman Empire, from this culture, this this melting pot of Jewish and Christian and Roman traditions. Um, Mecca, we are told, stood in the middle of a desert, uh, and its inhabitants, we are also told, are pagan. According to Muslim tradition, there are no Jews, there are no Christians in Mecca. They didn't there were not communities that, from which Muhammad could have picked up these stories, according to the traditional Muslim account. And what is more, we are also told by Muslim tradition, despite the fact that actually it's contradicted within the Quran, but we're told in Muslim tradition that Muhammad was illiterate. That there was no prospect of him curling up with the Bible, picking up a few stories, a few references to Moses or the Virgin. And if that's, if that's the case... If, if Muhammad comes of age in a city that is pagan, that is a thousand kilometers from the frontier with Palestine, um, if he is illiterate, then how on earth are we to explain this text, which is full of all these sophisticated cultural references, except as a bona fide miracle? It would seem, if we are to rely on the Muslim account of how the Quran came into being, that the divine must indeed have penetrated this mortal sublunar world of ours. 
And the parallel, I think, very interestingly, is with what Christians believe about the coming into the world of Christ. Because just as it is the blood and muscle of Mary's virgin womb that, in the opinion of Christians, had nurtured the coming into the world of Christ, so likewise, in the opinion of Muslims, was it the spreading, almost prophylactic sands of Arabia, which had served to preserve the word of God over the course of its protracted delivery in a fit condition of untainted purity. In other words, just to sum up, to make the point clear, if the Muslim traditions that tell us about how the Quran came into being, where Muhammad grew up, what kind of city Mecca was, if those are, traditions are authentic, then there is essentially no way of explaining the origins of the Quran except as coming from some divine entity. Which, of course, is fine if you're a Muslim. But if you're not, you might well say, well, okay, no, these, are, these are interesting stories, interesting traditions. Where do they come from? What are their origin? What are their dates? And, and this is where it gets interesting. Because um, I, I said that I didn't originally approach this topic as in any way uh, a specialist in Islam. Um, and so I had assumed, based on the fact that there are so many books published about the life of Muhammad, about the origins of, of Islam, that there would be an enormous amount of biographical material telling us about the life of Muhammad. Um, there is a wonderful quote from Salman Rushdie, of all people, um, where he says about Muhammad, and he's comparing it to Jesus, he says we know almost nothing about Jesus, but with Muhammad, we know everything more or less. We know where he lived, what his economic situation was, who he fell in love with. We know what his favourite food was. We know how he liked to brush his teeth. We know how he liked to play with children. You know, incredibly intimate, personal details. But, it's the rub. All this seeming wealth of biographical material dates, at the earliest, from about two centuries after he is supposed to have lived. From about AD 800, we start to get biographies. And over the course of the next two centuries, these biographies are written and rewritten. And the further from Muhammad's life we go, the more detailed these biographies become, which is a curious fact, and draws attention to the glaring lack of contemporary or even near-contemporary biographical materials written by Muslims. So, within the lifetime of Muhammad himself, and for about 170 years after, you look for this source material and there is nothing. There is a, a glaring black hole. Can black holes glare? I guess they can. Now, this is not to say, as, as some scholars have, uh, mostly in Germany, because in Germany, scholars like these kind of outre speculations, but Mohammed, I think, did exist. There are those who say he didn't, but I think, I think the evidence is pretty clear that he did. And the evidence is not Muslim, but generally Christian. 
Christians writing about the emergence of, of, of an Arab empire do name check Muhammad. I mean, the most tantalizing one is uh, written in 634, which is the year that the Arabs first appear in Palestine, the Roman province of Palestine conquering it, so the onslaught of, of, of the Arab invasions. Um, and this describes an unnamed prophet of the Saracens leading the invasion. All right, so go ahead and stop it right there. We need to go into it a little bit more, but I think it's important to pick up at this point this introduction into history with the consolidation of power behind Muhammad and their religious codification of war. So their purpose is to conquer the entire world and enslave it and force convert it to Islam. And so as we're looking forward, we're trying to understand how the, there is an unstated nexus, a convergence, a conjunction between Roman culture and Islam. And we can see this in the root doctrinal and literature and literary works of Islam and the Hadiths and then the Quran. And you can tell by simply doing a critical analysis of the text and the references to Mary and the references to Rome. And like he was speaking about the references to history and Alexander the Great, you can see that the texts of the Quran are being introduced. And even though it's highly irreligious, in the Islamic context, to say it, but the those supposed holy works were not passed down from an angel or from a divine source, but they were passed down by the, the clerics and the priests of the Roman Church. And so we're going to begin to show the connection and the nexus between the early Roman Vatican Church Empire, because remember, the power at this time of Imperial Rome is centered in the east in Constantinople. So back in the west in Rome, it is considered at that point a secondary and ultimately conquered territory. But the Pope of Rome and the power center of the Bishopric of Rome is going to become central after the Islamic invasion of Constantinople. This religio-cultic system of absolute religious autocracy, so it's autocratic dictatorship based on a divine mandate, and it's really global in scope. It meant to take over the entire world and the difficulty of that would continue, like we said, until the fall of Constantinople in 1453. And ultimately, the Ottoman Empire wouldn't be destroyed until World War One, And so we're talking about 1912, 1915 in that period, 1910. That's when we're going to really see the war that's going to destroy the Ottoman Empire. And in that collapse, the British and European powers would carve up the Ottoman Empire and create Syria create Iran, create Iraq, create Jordan, set everything in place, and ultimately carve out an area for European Jewry, and uh, the home, uh, ultimately would become a land, a homeland for the Jewish people. So we need to take a look, at, and we'll return to these other interviews as we go through these episodes. We're going to continue on with the subject matter until we kind of complete our course. So we're definitely going to return to this very interesting conversation but we need to kind of cut in here at this point an interesting introduction of knowledge into the discussion. So let's do that. So here we have Professor Walter Veith, and his last name is V-E-I-T-H, and he has a very interesting lecture here. Let's, let's have a listen. The Islamic religion is huge today, and it has some very fascinating features. It's a very exclusive religion. Nobody from the outside is allowed in. 
If there are pilgrimages to Mecca, only those of the Islamic faith are allowed to go to these pilgrimages. It is an exclusive religion. Evangelism in Islamic countries is totally forbidden. This religion has full control of the entire territory which it controls. Now, who and what is Islam? Now, I have known many people from the Islamic faith. As a professor at the university, many of my students were of the Islamic faith. And I can tell you that I have very high regard for them. They are conscientious, they are serious about their faith, they believe that they are doing the right thing, they have a very high standard of what is right and what is wrong, and they will stand for principle. These are all wonderful ideals by those propagating the Islamic faith. And they are loyal like no others. Of all my students, I can honestly say that the students that came from the Islamic faith were loyal beyond anything that I could mention. So, let me pay tribute to them. You will remember that we in the lectures discussed that the Knights Templars had two aspects of their religion. The one was for the Goyim for the uninitiated, and that, according to morals and dogma and all the, the testimonies relating to this issue, was Catholicism. So the outside world got Catholicism. The inner esoteric circle had Luciferianism. That was what happened in Catholicism. Do you think it might be possible that exactly the same thing could be happening in the Islamic faith? That there is an inner circle and an outer circle. That the inner circle has one faith and the outer circle gets Goyam religion, the Islamic faith. And that controlling them both is a central organization which is seated where? Well, the Bible says that it is seated in Rome and nowhere else. The Bible says that the beast is Roman. It comes out of the Roman Empire, and Islam does not come out of the Roman Empire. The controlling force in the Bible is Rome. This is an interesting point. So if we look at this tremendous rival religion, which in numbers equals Catholicism, what is its origin and why is it there? These are very important questions. This is a mighty, mighty religion. And millions of people make the pilgrimages to Mecca, where they worship at the shrine of Muhammad. What a privilege it is for them to make the pilgrimage. There's another religion which also propagates pilgrimages, and that is Catholicism. So you have pilgrimages to Lourdes and the Marian sites and to Fatima. Pilgrimage is a symbol of the great pagan religions of the past as well. Now, who was Muhammad? Muhammad Mustafa was born in 570 AD and he died in 632 AD. He fled to Medina in 622 AD after Khadija's death. Now, who was Khadija? Muhammad married Khadija when he was 25 and she was 40 years old. 
Her cousin, Varakwa, was a Roman Catholic, and she came from a Roman Catholic convent. So we could say she was a Roman Catholic nun. She was super rich. She lived in a convent. And she had uh, the whole of the economy, basically, in her hand. And she employed this young man, Mohammed, whom she then also married. Muhammad marched on Mecca in 630 AD, two years before he died and four years before Omar became Caliph. And the Quran was compiled in 650 AD. And Muhammad, who couldn't write himself, had a scribe to write down what he saw and what he heard. And the Quran is different, apparently, from all other religious writings because it was a directly dictated book. So it is not just transcribed by a prophet, so they teach, but he is the very word of God, and therefore it must always remain in its original Arabic language. That is what is taught in the Islamic religion. The symbol of Islam is the sickle moon and the star. The star within the sickle moon. Now where does this symbol come from? And who is Allah? Well, let's go to... Uh, some interesting quotes also from encyclopedias of religion and etc. Allah, he was the moon god who married the sun goddess. Together they produced three goddesses who were called the daughters of Allah. These three goddesses were called Allah, Al-Uzza and Manat. Encyclopedia of religion mentions that Allah is a pre-Islamic name corresponding to the Babylonian bell. Fascinating. So this is an ancient pagan religion, and Baal, or Baal, is the deity. We read in Morals and Dogma, page 451, the Arabian word Al-Debaran means the foremost or leading star, and it could only have been so named when it did precede or lead all others. The year then opened with the sun in Taurus and the multitude of ancient sculptures both in Assyria and Egypt wherein the bull appears with lunette or crescent horns and the disk of the sun between them are direct illusions to important festivals of the first new moon of the year and there was everywhere an annual celebration of the festival of the first new moon when the year opened with Sol, the sun, and Luna, the moon, in Taurus and the symbol of Taurus is that one over there. The crescent and disc combined always represent the conjunctive sun and moon. That means basically the male-female deity. Male-female aspect. So we can see right here that Dr. Vaith is going to point out what's the glaringly obvious predicament that uh, Islam is drawing from the roots of its prehistoric pagan past and combining the, the symbols of Egyptian and Babylonian religio-cultic ritualism and in their astrotheology when they worshipped the sun. And so this was true for the Greeks and for Rome as well, who were worshipped Apollos, who was the sun god. So ultimately the symbols of the crescent moon and the star and Islam are really going to be these, these root pagan constructs from antiquity. And we're going to point out here that one of the main connections ultimately between Islam and Rome is going to be in the order of the Knights Templar. The Templar Knights were in existence 
at the time, and they would be one of the main contenders, the main forces of, of Christendom. So they were going to be fighting to make sure that Roman Catholic territories weren't going to be conquered by the hordes and armies of Islam. And ultimately, they would learn each other's customs and languages. We'll learn more about the Hashemites and their their initiation into their their, their religio-cultic mysteries. And the, the Templar Knights are going to learn very quickly how to interact with Islam and how to res- how to fight them on the battlefield. And ultimately, there's going to be a merger in the the hierarchical peer culture within these two very different systems of religion. I really want to put a focus on these Babylonian mysteries that are going to be matriculated and forward in history and inculcated into the different parties that are going to inter- interact with Islam and ultimately with the Hashemites. And they're going to be exposed to these doctrines and these practices of ancient myst- mysticism and for empire building as well, which are systems of conquest and religio-imperial domination. And so that's how we're going to arrive at this point where the Knights Templar are going to be ultimately transformed into a powerhouse of mystical knowledge and banking power. We're going to arrive there through through the course of time. We have to first understand how Islam was entered into the picture and transformed a background of Persian, Mithraic, Bedouin cultures, Zoroastrianism, and prevailing astrotheology. And suddenly under the banner of Muhammad and these new purportedly divine texts and the infusion of an army and financial backing, we have to wonder how the religion of Islam was able to explode across the historical landscape of antiquity. And we're really coming up through a period where the ancient practices that we see coming through Mesopotamia, through Egypt, and through Babylon, passing through these initiations of knowledge, this sacred knowledge, secret traditions and secret mysteries and symbols are being carried through history and time when suddenly Islam, in a most brutal and diabolical butchery, takes a hold of the entire religio-cultic tradition of the region and forces converts everyone to this new religious doctrine. And it's very confusing because apparently Muhammad can't read, and yet he's being endowed with all these purportedly supposedly holy writings to which everyone must bow or die. So we have to wonder what is at the origin of such a destructive ideology. And these are not things that the religion of Islam is open to take in lightly as criticism. It's built to to kill all opposition and to refuse any critical analysis or thought along these lines. So we're going to go back to Stefan Molino and the real history of the Crusades and continue on with that particular perspective has to some degree been the history of attempting to work with existing belief systems, prior belief systems, contemporary belief systems. If you look at, of course, the the massive respect given to the non-Christian philosopher Aristotle throughout the late Middle uh, Ages period, he was called the philosopher, uh, and he was not considered uh, a heretic or a blasphemer and so on. And that's just one example of the fact that the Christianity was willing to work with Roman uh, ideas, Roman philosophy, and in particular Roman law, right, when the cities began to re-emerge in the late Middle Ages as the result of, you know, there being better farming methods, excess food is required for cities, otherwise everyone's starving to death in their own 40 acres. And so when the cities began to regrow, the, the church turned to Roman law as a way of saying, let's not reinvent the wheel here. We had a great system of law that came, of course, from originally non-Christian sources and was developed um, 
in, in early Christianity, uh, well, developed before Christianity, but further developed in early Christianity. So there's this willingness to absorb and work with other belief systems. And of course, Christianity is not a political system. Uh, and people look at the theological aspects of Islam, which is fair, of course, the theological aspects to Islam, but it is a political system. Uh, as I said before, it's sort of like looking at communism and saying, well, it's just an economic theory. It's like, nope, it's a political system. And that, of course, is the challenge. So let's talk a little bit about the tipping point for the first question of the Crusades, right? So there are Christian Byzantines um, who were in Constantinople, now Istanbul. Oh, that always gets that song in my head. But um, uh, uh, so uh, the, the Byzantines were being attacked by, by the Muslims. Uh, there was a second Muslim attack that was just barely repelled. And this, this battle between the Christian Byzantines and the Muslims went on for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, successes and failures on both sides. And uh, the Byzantines were never able to recapture their territory. And they tried, of course, they were devout Christians, they tried to recapture Jerusalem, but were unable to, uh, to do so. And because Jerusalem is so important to the Christians, uh, the Byzantines were working hard to, to recover it from, uh, from Muslim rule for more than a century, and then the Crusades happened. So here we go, 1071, the Byzantines had uh, suffered a crushing defeat under the Muslims. They lost a huge amount of their territory, and their emperor was captured. And so from 1073 to 1095, the Byzantines were begging members of the Western nobility and Christian leaders for military aid. And then what happened, 1095, ambassadors sent by the Byzantine emperor appeared before Pope Urban II and said, we need your help to deal with the Muslims. And it was later that year, this is almost 1100, almost the year 1100, the Pope said, maybe, maybe we should start looking at military solutions to these uh, expansionist uh, uh, tendencies of Islam, and we should try and take back the key areas uh, of, uh, of Christian theology. Yes, and the one thing we haven't yet mentioned, that it's so obvious that the fact that nobody mentions it is why our kids have forgotten it. Jerusalem, the Palestine, it was not empty. I mean, this idea that somehow my kids actually believe that Islam always and forever had owned Jerusalem, right? That it was always a, a Jew, uh, an Islamic city. The idea that my kids seem to have is that one day at some mysterious vantage point, Islamic armies wandered into Jerusalem and found a completely abandoned city, and then they just inherited it, right? Uh, the, the, the story of the Crusades always begins with 1095, right? A Christian pope decides uh, to send an army to Jerusalem to try to take it back. But the back is the key. For uh, for for four five hundred years, Islam had been advancing and conquering. They had taken these. They put brutalized the inhabitants of Jerusalem when they took the city. That doesn't count as crusade. Doesn't count as colonialism. It's only that pivotal moment in 1095 when and it reminds me of today's circumstance. Any attempt on the modern Western world to fight back or to even try to stem the, the tide of immigration from certain highly uh, politicized, radicalized nations, that's considered racist, right? So uh, it, it feeds, and you see how much worse it gets. If we treat our history this way, right, if we refuse to see the complex interactions of different kinds of people from our history, how in the world can we deal with today's problems? We can't. Our, in, in the same way that we're apologetic now for crusading Islamic armies and angry that 
Western armies, armies finally tried to answer them. You see what's happening in places like Germany and Sweden now, right? Where it's much better to allow your daughters to be raped. It's much better to keep your mouth shut and allow aid, state aid, to be paid to um, terrorist people, to, uh, terrorist families. Much better to do that than to risk opening your mouth in defense of Western values, which we have taught people have no defense anymore. Right. So the tipping point for the Crusades, let's just, yeah, as you point, point out, let's just give people a brief sort of takeaway. You've had over 400 years of Muslim aggression, uh, invasion, taking over of Christianity, Christian territories. Three out of the five Christian centers have fallen to Muslim hands. Rome has been attacked. Two of its holy sites have been desecrated. Constantinople, which is one of the last remaining capitals of Christianity, is facing down a Muslim threat, again, existential to its existence. So this idea that Christians just woke up one day and just decided, hey, let's just go charging off to the Middle East and start hacking people up. Um, come on. I mean, this, this can't be, this can't be uh, considered to be true at all. I mean, the, the Christians stood for uh, or stood without a huge counterattack or a significant counterattack. They, uh, let's say, accepted. They allowed for or they submitted to this expansionism for longer than slavery existed in America before uh, really coalescing and, and fighting back. And um, Jerusalem, of course, uh, the, the first crusade was the aim was to recapture Jerusalem, which was a Christian city. And they were simply trying to take back what culturally and theologically and historically had been Christian to begin with. And that is very, very tough for people to process. They also don't understand uh, when, when the Muslims uh, had uh, Muslim piracy, the Barbary pirates and so on, was a huge deal. One of the first things Thomas Jefferson had to do when he was president was deal with problems with Muslim piracy, North Africa, the Mediterranean, and so on. This is one of the reasons why, I mean, people, it's astonishing. Over a million Europeans were taken as slaves uh, by, by Muslims and other North Africans. The entire coastline around Europe was depopulated. People couldn't even fish. That the reason why there are castles was because of these constant raids from Muslim slave traders. And um, again, this it doesn't exist in history, which is why history is now a strangulation fable designed to crush the larynx of Western cultural pride or self-respect or, or any appreciation for, for, for the positive effects of Western culture. It is a brain virus and it's impossible for me to understand how what's taught uh, in, in the West, what's taught as history, how could it possibly different, be different from, from the greatest enemies of the West teaching that history? I mean, they always say, oh, the winners write the history. It's like, okay, so who's won and who's writing this history now? Because it sure as hell isn't the victors of the West. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, somebody at the university level who sees the kind of history that's getting taught, it is acrimoniously incorrect about Western culture in general. You mentioned uh, the fall of Constantinople. Think about that for a second. All this demand today for reparations, how we have to make amends, just the West does, right, for what we've done. Uh, but the greatest, the, to, this, to this day, the greatest church, uh, the la largest church in human history, the Hagia Sophia, right, that great church in Constantinople, it's now the greatest mosque in the world, right, that they took this great building, this edifice of Byzantine Christianity, Islam conquered it, turned it into a mosque, and yet where are the, cause, the, the calls for reparations? If we, if we called for Islam to give back and repair, provide reparations for what it's taken, the toll on them would be so outrageously high as to dwarf 
uh, what American or Western responsibilities are. And yet, this is something that we almost can't even talk about uh, because of the, the multi- how dominant multiculturalism has become. Conversation with Stefan Molyneux is going to be really central to our understanding of what the modern perspective is. And it really puts forward the idea that on one hand you had the Islamic religion, and on the other hand you had Roman Christianity or Christendom, and they were the two dominant prevailing cultural ideological religious systems at work, and that there was really no other religious perspective involved. When the truth is, is that there is, that there was another civilizational, geopolitical, and religious system involved, and that was that of those who were Gallicans, or who were ultimately considered to be Huguenots, or Waldensians, or original biblical Christians, who were so often persecuted, just like the the Jewish people. So you would see that the system of religio-cultic tyranny that would rise out of Roman imperial religious practice, just as it would out of the Islamic tyranny, both persecuted Jews and Christians. Islam obviously persecuted Christians, but so did the Roman religious system. It also persecuted Christians who would not agree perfectly with its orthodoxy. And ultimately, there was a rivalry between the bishop in Constantinople and the bishop there in Rome about who was superior and who, which bishop was supreme and head over the whole church. Originally, a city had a bishop and the city had a church, and the idea of who was hegemonically and hierarchically in control of all the rest was a concept that Roman imperialism decided that it needed. It needed that its church and its holy see and its bishop to be dominant and superior over all the rest, over the entire world. So there's really not much difference between Roman religion and Islamic religion. One had a pope that everyone must bow and kiss his ring, and the other one had a caliph of which everyone must bow and kiss his ring. And he was religiously unopposable, and he was the supreme king and sovereign over his religion. So you can see here that Rome is a political system, even though the guest here with Stephen Molyneux suggests that Rome is not a political system, we can see that it really is, just like Islam. And that ultimately, these secret orders and the orders of the warriors, like the Hashemites and the Knights Templar are ultimately going to be the ones who, being the ones who face each other on the battlefield and to sign peace treaties and who ultimately must interface, are the ones who are going to carry on the inner doctrine and the inner traditions and the inner ritualistic praxis of the unspoken secret doctrine that's kept veiled within their orders. There's going to be a, a union behind the scenes between Islam and Rome. And ultimately, as we go forward, we're going to see that as the pagan landscape, the Zoroastrian tribal factions and the post-Persian Mithraic customs of all the people in the region were going to be swept up in the Islamic revolution by force. Islam would have a warlike ideological construct at its core and seek to conquer the entire region around it. And ultimately, this benefited Rome back in the western part of the empire as the eastern part of the empire in Constantinople would collapse before the constant raids of the Islamic armies. So we'll have to look now more at the origins of Islam itself and take another look here. And we're going to see as we go in and take a deeper look into the subject where the power and the religious inspiration for the religio-cultic system of Islam began. I'm going to introduce to you now um, a little bit of the writing of Alberto Rivera. And it's important that you probably find out who he is. He is going to be a Jesuit priest who left the order and had some things to say about what he had learned from Cardinal Bia in the Vatican. And it was for him to discover that, according to the Vatican historians, 
uh, from their point of view, they understand that Islam itself was to be a construct of their geopolitical power in the region in the 7th century. So that what, from what we're going to learn from Alberto Rivera, the the influence both for doctrine, uh, for literature, for military uh, strength, and for the local geoeconomic triangulation that went into the consideration of putting forth Muhammad as the new leader of this cult is a intelligent calculation on the part of the men who are running the Vatican the priestcraft in Rome. So let's listen to this reading from Alberto Rivera. This information came from Alberto Rivera, former Jesuit priest after his conversion to Protestant Christianity. It is excerpted from The Prophet, published by Chick Publications, P.O. Box 661, Chino, California, 91708. Since his publication, after several unsuccessful attempts on his life, he died suddenly from food poisoning. His testimony should not be silenced. Dr. Rivera speaks to us still. What I'm going to tell you is what I learned in secret briefings in the Vatican when I was a Jesuit priest, under oath and induction. A Jesuit cardinal named Augustine B. showed us how desperately the Roman Catholics wanted Jerusalem at the end of the 3rd century. Because of its religious history and its strategic location, the holy city was considered a priceless treasure. A scheme had to be developed to make Jerusalem a Roman Catholic city. The great untapped source of manpower that could do this job was the children of Ishmael. The poor Arabs fell victim to one of the most clever plans ever devised by the powers of darkness. Early Christians went everywhere with the gospel setting up small churches, but they met heavy opposition. Both the Jews and the Roman government persecuted the believers in Christ to stop their spread. But the Jews rebelled against Rome, and in 70 AD, Roman armies under General Titus smashed Jerusalem and destroyed the great Jewish temple, which was the heart of Jewish worship, a fulfillment of Christ's prophecy in Matthew 24, 2. On this holy place today, where the temple once stood, the Dome of the Rock Mosque stands as Islam's second most holy place. Sweeping changes were in the wind. Corruption, apathy, greed, cruelty, perversion, and rebellion were eating at the Roman Empire, and it was ready to collapse. The persecution against Christians was useless as they continued to lay down their lives for the gospel of Christ. The only way Satan could stop this thrust was to create a counterfeit Christian religion to destroy the work of God. The solution was in Rome. The religion had come from ancient Babylon, and all it needed was a facelift. This didn't happen overnight, but began in the writings of the early church fathers. It was through their writings that a new religion would take shape. The statue of Jupiter in Rome was eventually called St. Peter, and the statue of Venus was changed to the Virgin Mary. The site chosen for its headquarters was on one of the seven hills called Vaticanus, the place of the diving serpent where the satanic temple of Janus stood. 
The great counterfeit religion was called Roman Catholicism, called Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Revelation 17.5 She was raised up to block the gospel, slaughter the believers in Christ, establish religions, create wars, and make the nations drunk with the wine of her fornication, as we will see. Three major religions have one thing in common. Each has a holy place where they look for guidance. Roman Catholicism looks to the Vatican as the holy city. The Jews look to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, and the Muslims look to Mecca as their holy city. Each group believes that they receive certain types of blessings for the rest of their lives for visiting their holy place. In the beginning, Arab visitors would bring gifts to the house of God, and the keepers of the Kaaba were gracious to all who came. Some brought their idols and, not wanting to offend these people, their idols were placed inside the sanctuary. It is said that the Jews looked upon the Kaaba as an outlying tabernacle of the Lord with veneration until it became polluted with idols. In a tribal contention over a well, Zamzam, the treasure of the Kaaba and the offerings that the pilgrims had given were dumped down the well and it was filled with sand. It disappeared. Many years later, Ab al-Mutabi was given visions telling him where to find the well and its treasure. He became the hero of Mecca, and he was destined to become the grandfather of Muhammad. Before this time, Augustine became the bishop of North Africa and was effective in winning Arabs to Roman Catholicism, including whole tribes. It was among these Arab converts to Catholicism that the concept of looking for an Arab prophet developed. Muhammad's father died from illness, and sons born to great Arab families in places like Mecca were sent into the desert to be suckled and weaned and spend time of their childhood with Bedouin tribes for training and to avoid the plagues in the cities. After his mother and grandfather also died, Muhammad was with his uncle when a Roman Catholic monk learned of his identity and said, Take your brother's son and go back to his country and guard him against the Jews. For by God, if they see him and know of him that which I know, they will construe evil against him. Great things are in store for this brother's son of yours. The Roman Catholic monk had fanned the flames for future Jewish persecutions at the hands of the followers of Muhammad. The Vatican desperately wanted Jerusalem because of its religious significance, but was blocked by the Jews. Another problem was the true Christians in North Africa who preached the gospel. Roman Catholicism was growing in power, but would not tolerate opposition. Somehow the Vatican had to create a weapon to eliminate both the Jews and the true Christian believers who refused to accept Roman Catholicism. Looking to North Africa, they saw the multitudes of Arabs as a source of manpower to do their dirty work. Some Arabs had become Roman Catholic and could be used in reporting information to leaders in Rome. Others were used in an underground spy network to carry out Rome's master plan to control the great multitudes of Arabs who rejected Catholicism. 
When St. Augustine appeared on the scene, he knew what was going on. His monastery served as bases to seek out and destroy Bible manuscripts owned by the true Christians. The Vatican wanted to create a messiah for the Arabs, someone they could raise up as a great leader, a man with charisma whom they could train, and eventually unite all the non-Catholic Arabs behind him, creating a mighty army that would ultimately capture Jerusalem for the Pope. In the Vatican briefing, Cardinal B. told this story. A wealthy Arabian lady, who was a faithful follower of the Pope, played a tremendous part in this drama. She was a widow named Kadja. She gave her wealth to the church and retired to a convent, but was given an assignment. She was to find a brilliant young man who could be used by the Vatican to create a new religion and become the Messiah for the children of Ishmael. Kadja had a cousin named Oroquah, who was also a very faithful Roman Catholic, and the Vatican placed him in a critical role as Muhammad's advisor. He had tremendous influence on Muhammad. Teachers were sent to young Muhammad, and he had intensive training. Muhammad studied the works of St. Augustine, which prepared him for his great calling. The Vatican had Catholic Arabs across North Africa spread the story of a great one who was about to rise up among the people and be the chosen one of their God. While Muhammad was being prepared, he was told that his enemies were the Jews and that the only true Christians were Roman Catholic. He was taught that others calling themselves Christians were actually wicked imposters and should be destroyed. Many Muslims believe this. Muhammad began receiving divine revelations, and his wife's Catholic cousin, Uruquah, helped interpret them. From this came the Quran. In the fifth year of Muhammad's mission, persecution came against his followers because they refused to worship the idols in the Kaaba. Muhammad instructed some of them to flee to Abyssinia or Negus. The Roman Catholic king accepted them because Muhammad's views on the Virgin Mary were so close to Roman Catholic doctrine. These Muslims received protection from Catholic kings because of Muhammad's revelations. Muhammad later conquered Mecca and the Kaaba was cleared of idols. History proves that before Islam came into existence, the Sabians in Arabia worshipped the moon god who was married to the sun god. They gave birth to three goddesses who were worshipped throughout the Arab world as daughters of Allah. An idol excavated at Hazor in Palestine in 1950s shows Allah sitting on a throne with the crescent moon on his chest. Muhammad claimed he had a vision from Allah and was told, You are the messenger of Allah. This began his career as a prophet and he received By the time Muhammad died, the religion of Islam was exploding. The nomadic Arab tribes were joining forces in the name of Allah and his prophet, Muhammad. Some of Muhammad's writings were placed in the Quran. Others were never published. They are now in the hands of high-ranking holy men, ayatollahs, in the Islamic faith.
When Cardinal B shared this with us in the Vatican, he said, these writings are guarded because they contain information that links the Vatican to the creation of Islam. Both sides have so much information on each other that if exposed, it could create such a scandal that it would be a disaster for both religions. In their holy book, the Quran, Christ is regarded as only a prophet. If the Pope was his representative on earth, then he also must be a prophet of God. This caused the followers of Muhammad to fear and respect the Pope as another holy man. The Pope moved quickly and issued bulls granting the Arab generals permission to invade and conquer the nations of North Africa. The Vatican helped to finance the building of these massive Islamic armies in exchange for three favors. One, eliminate the Jews and Christians, true believers, which they called infidels. Two, protect the Augustinian monks and Roman Catholics. Three, conquer Jerusalem for His Holiness in the Vatican. As time went by, the power of Islam became tremendous. Jews and true Christians were slaughtered, and Jerusalem fell into their hands. Roman Catholics were never attacked, nor were their shrines, during this time. But when the Pope asked for Jerusalem, he was surprised at their denial. The Arab generals had such military success that they could not be intimidated by the Pope. Nothing could stand in the way of their own plan. Under Warakwa's direction, Muhammad wrote that Abraham offered Ishmael as a sacrifice. The Bible says that Isaac was the sacrifice. But Muhammad removed Isaac's name and inserted Ishmael's name. As a result of this and Muhammad's vision, the faithful Muslims built a mosque, the Dome of the Rock, in Ishmael's honor on the site of the Jewish temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. This made Jerusalem the second most holy place in the Islam faith. How could they give such a sacred shrine to the Pope without causing a revolt? The Pope realized what they had created was out of control when he had heard they were calling His Holiness an infidel. The Muslim generals were determined to conquer the world for Allah, and now they had turned toward Europe. Islamic ambassadors approached the Pope and asked for papal bulls to give them permission to invade European countries. The Vatican was outraged. War was inevitable. Temporal power and control of the world was considered the basic right of the Pope. He wouldn't think of sharing it with those whom he considered heathens. The Pope raised up his armies and called them crusades to hold back the children of Ishmael from grabbing Catholic Europe. The crusades lasted centuries and Jerusalem slipped out of the Pope's hands. Turkey fell and Spain and Portugal were invaded by Islamic forces. In Portugal, they called a mountain village Fatima in honor of Muhammad's daughter, never dreaming it would become world famous. Years later, when the Muslim armies were poised on the islands of Sardinia and Corsica to invade Italy, there was a serious problem. The Islamic generals realized they were too far extended. It was time for peace talks. One of the negotiators was Francis of Assisi. As a result, the Muslims were allowed to occupy Turkey in a Christian world. 
and the Catholics were allowed to occupy Lebanon in the Arab world. It was also agreed that the Muslims could build mosques in Catholic countries without interference, as long as Roman Catholicism could flourish in Arab countries. Cardinal B. told us in Vatican briefings that both the Muslims and Roman Catholics agreed to block and destroy the efforts of their common enemy, Bible-believing Christian missionaries. Through these concordance, Satan blocked the children of Ishmael from a knowledge of Scripture and the truth. A light control was kept on Muslims from the Ayatollah down through the Islamic priests, nuns, and monks. The Vatican also engineers a campaign of hatred between the Muslim Arabs and the Jews. Before this, they had coexisted peacefully. The Islamic community looks on the Bible-believing missionary as a devil who brings poison to the children of Allah. This explains years of ministry in those countries with little results. The next plan was to control Islam. In 1910, Portugal was going socialistic. Red flags were appearing and the Catholic Church was facing a major problem. Increasing numbers were against the Church. The Jesuits wanted Russia involved. And the location of this vision at Fatima could play a key part in pulling Islam to the Mother Church. In 1917, the Virgin appeared in Fatima. The Mother of God was a smashing success, playing to overflow crowds. As a result, the socialists of Portugal suffered a major defeat. Roman Catholics worldwide began praying for the conversion of Russia, and the Jesuits invented the Nova Nas to Fatima, which they could perform throughout North Africa, spreading good public relations to the Muslim world. The Arabs thought they were honoring the daughter of Muhammad, which is what the Jesuits wanted them to believe. As a result of the vision of Fatima, Pope Pius XII ordered his Nazi army to crush Russia and the Orthodox religion and make Russia Roman Catholic. A few years after he lost World War II, Pope Pius XII startled the world with his phony dancing sun vision to keep Fatima in the news. It was great religious showbiz, and the world swallowed it. Not surprisingly, Pope Pius was the only one to see this vision. As a result, a group of followers has grown into a blue army worldwide, totaling millions of faithful Roman Catholics ready to die for the Blessed Virgin. But we haven't seen anything yet. The Jesuits have their Virgin Mary scheduled to appear four or five times in China, Russia, and major appearances in the U.S. What has this got to do with Islam? Note Bishop Sheen's statement. Our Lady's appearances at Fatima mark the turning point in the history of the world's 350 million Muslims. After the death of his daughter, Muhammad wrote that she is the most holy of all women in paradise next to Mary. He believed that the Virgin Mary chose to be known as Our Lady of Fatima as a sign and a pledge that the Muslims who believe in Christ's virgin birth will come to believe in his divinity. Bishop Sheen pointed out that the pilgrim virgin statues of Our Lady of Fatima were enthusiastically received by Muslims in Africa, India, and elsewhere. 
So that was a reading taken from Alberto Rivera, and he, by all accounts, was a man who has, has a lot of integrity and was highly educated and didn't have any particular reason to, to want to um, create such a division over his teaching if it wasn't for purpose of revealing the truth. So people give him a lot of credit. And it brings us to the question of another Albert, and that's in the person of Albert Pike. Albert Pike is someone we've talked about before. He's someone who had his statue ripped down in Washington, D.C., and um, despite the fact that the looters and the rioters are a bunch of pro-Marxist useful idiots out there in the streets just being paid for by <clears throat> Soros and other elite arist aristocratic power players who are trying to just wreak havoc on the streets within the United States. But Albert Pike was someone who was the creator of the Palladium Order. He was a Confederate general in the Civil War, so it's strange that he had a, a, a statue, a huge bronze statue in Washington, D.C., that went you know, so unnoticed. And he was also the creator, um, or at least um, one of the, the highest ranking Scottish Rite Freemasons, being of the 33rd degree. He was famous for having connected with Leo Taxil in a letter where they discussed the eventual destruction of all current popular governments through the system of the Illuminati. So being someone who was alive in the 1850s, he was someone someone who was privy to the the movements of the Illuminati and was actually a part of the Illuminati system within the United States. So when we're talking about having connections with the Illuminati and the power elite with Rome and how that influence would have affected the Civil War, including the Skull and Bones men out of Yale, what their, their movements were. And so Albert Pike becomes a central figure. And he was also famous for having been one of the creators of the Ku Klux Klan, KKK. So th this man, Albert Pike, bears some scrutiny from us. We need to really pay attention to what is happening with this guy and the people that are his followers, people that were like him. Who wrote, he wrote that he was in constant connection with Lucifer. So he was a Luciferian. He was someone who, down in the, in the lodge, in the Freemason Lodge, they have three main lights or three main doctrines on their main altar within the lodge. And of course, those are the, the Talmudic writings of the Talmud, the Quran, and the King James Version Bible. So there's three doctrines and scriptural writings and religious texts are at the center of the lodge. So we're going to get more into Albert Pike as we move forward. I think we're going to have to do another part of this. We'll do a part two of this episode so we can get deeper into really what's happening behind the scenes and the occult aspects. And so what we re really were able to reveal at this point was that the Roman Catholic agents were central in having their priestcraft and their skills at empire building and having being advanced within the current civilization of the day. They were able to take a lot of these tribal Arabian and Persian peoples and and mold their belief systems into a patchwork of cult ideology that was useful to Rome. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the Cardinal Augustine Bia um, had revealed to many of his students that a lot of the secret teachings that were unknown to the outside public, the goyim as it were, just the unclean masses like you and me, were not allowed to know that the origins of Islam were really from the Vatican. And I think that the controllers of both these religions today know this, and as they try to bring about this one world Usmanism where they combine interfaith religions into one system, we can see that the danger is growing enormous for those and for the implications for those who don't in, intend on being part of a one world system or United Nations global governance or uni, universal world religion. We want to have our, our little independent Protestant Republic of America with our freedom and liberty, constitutional bill of rights, and freedom for all. 
and economic prosperity to boot. That's really what we're fighting for here in, in the American Revolution. So in revealing this heavy knowledge, you're not going to be able to go into any modern college or any library and really hear this story laid out for you the way we did here. But we're trying to get you to see the bigger picture and understand the occult knowledge is unseen. It's obscured. It's secret. You're not allowed to know it. So in this broadcast here, this podcast, we're going to make sure that you do know it. And even if you don't like it or agree with it, at least you'll hear the facts as other men have laid down their lives to bring them to you. So we're really going to go forward in the next episodes and listen to more of Tom Holland and the origins of Islam, learn more about what Walter Walter Veith has to say, and also Alberto Rivera. But we're also going to learn about Albert Pike. He wrote the books, The Morals and Dogma. Morals and Dogma is the central piece, the central literature, the central Bible, if you will, for Scottish Rite Freemasons. So you might want to take a look at it at some point. But it talks about Templarism. And Templarism is the Knights of the Temple, and they were the Knights of the Temple of Solomon. So these knighthood orders of the Pope, papal knights, who are there to control the Temple of Solomon, the holy site of Jerusalem, if you will, for the Pope. And then on the other side, there's going to be Muslim knights and Muslim secret societies, uh, Hashishans, as I was saying, Hashemites, but I mean, the, the earlier on, that's the Hash, Hashishan sect, who were a secret society um, of men who were assassins, and they could they would kill themselves in the act of their mission, and believe that they, they rewarded, they, they had a sacred merit and a higher reward if they lay down their lives. So you, a lot of those aspects are the same kind of thinking that, we, that are behind suicide bombers today. So we need to understand more about the Middle East, which was over in the eastern side of the Roman Empire, and ultimately Constantinople, and that area, on that side of the water, the Mediterranean, if, if you will. Ultimately, we know that Constantinople would fall, and the preeminence of the Pope of Rome would become central, being the Bishop of Rome. And so we need to explore that more, that Rome really is a political system. So now in order to really kind of wrap up this discussion, we have a really interesting interview here that Eric John Phelps did with Red Ice Radio. And if you haven't heard this, you really need to hear it. We're going to play a part of it right now. And it's central to our entire discussion to understand these background ideas and understand really what if you haven't heard this knowledge before, this is what is underlying within the secret doctrines of Freemasonry, within the secret doctrines of Papal Knights, like the Knights of Malta. These are central doctrines within the high-up elite within Islam, behind the closed doors of the Vatican. These, this is the information that, that people already know. And that's what Tom Holland was talking about. When you look at the, the actual literary criticism of the Quran, you have to recognize that how often the, the Virgin Mary, which is a uniquely Roman Catholic idea, comes into play within the making her sacred within the, the Quran. So these are original precursor ideas that were implanted from the Augustinian monks who were building buildings all over the Middle East at the time and had no problem setting uh, this illiterate Muhammad on the path that they had chose for him. So let's go on this interview with Eric John Phelps and take a listen to what you know some of his insights on it. Uh, we're going to begin to talk about the Vatican connection and the potential creation of Islam and uh, move on from there forward in history to discuss some other connections to the consequent terror fraud, as it were, related to Al-Qaeda and uh, what we've seen after the 9-11 attacks and look at some of the establishment connections to all of this. Uh, so with that, welcome back to the program, Eric. Uh, nice to have you on the program again. Pleased to be with you, Henrik, and your listeners today. 
thank you for coming on. Much appreciated. Uh, I want to begin here right at the top, so to speak, and go back to about, uh, what is it, 14 to 1500 years. And uh, the official story goes that the uh, you know, Prophet Muhammad was receiving re revelations from God and uh, that this was memorized and recorded by some of his companions. And uh, this became as what we know as the Quran today. And Muhammad lived between, I think, 570 and 632 BC. Uh, I mean, to start right with that, Eric, do you think that that story is a fraud, or is there some uh, some truth to that? You think? Well, as far as Constantine, uh, pardon me, as far as uh, Islam being started by Muhammad, is that what the question is? That's right. That's right. Um, well, according to Alberto Rivera, and I believe his testimony in the Chip publication, The Prophet. I believe, and it can be substantiated from a few other sources, that um, Islam was a creation of the Vatican through the Augustinian monks of North Africa, and that they were the ones who were responsible ultimately for the rise of Muhammad, and that they tutored him also. And the purpose for uh, Islam being created by the Vatican was, number one, to block the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Arab people. And number two, to use the Arab peoples for the killing of the racial Jews throughout Arabia and North Africa, and also to use the Arab peoples for the killing off of true Bible-believing Arabs and racial Jews and uh, even some black Africans in northern Africa, going all the way across North Africa to invade Spain, finally, and to uh, kill off the Aryans who denied the the Roman Catholic, the Papal Trinity, as opposed to the Biblical Bible-based Trinity. And so that's why the Muslims occupied Spain and, uh, for nearly some 700 years. So the purpose for the Vatican in creating Islam was to use Islam as a sword of the church to kill off the enemies of the papacy while at the same time keeping an arm's distance, the papacy keeping an arm's distance from this killing so it looks like the Vatican is innocent and it's and it's an evil, wicked Islam that's doing it apart from any papal control. Right, right. But I, right, so I get into this in a CD that I have just finished, that's okay. available, and then I have my Jesuit Watch newsletter that comes out bi-monthly, six, six issues per year. This is now available too, and that's 40 Federal Reserve notes a year. And please forgive me by using the term Federal Reserve notes. <laughs> they're not dollars. I understand. Uh, in, you know, they're Federal Reserve notes, so in, in being a Bible believer, I should be honest about what the notes we're using. So that's, in fact, what they are. Well, it's good to clarify that. That gives a kind of a, a, you know, a mental reminder of what it is uh, you guys uh, are, are uh, you know, uh, dealing with over there, so to speak. So that's a good one. Right. Um, the Post-Federal post Reserve Bank with the Post-Federal Reserve notes, and the Federal Reserve notes are nothing more than indulgences, evidences of debt, so we can go out and sin and incur debt to be more indebted to the Federal Reserve Bank controlled by the Knights of Malta. There you go. Uh, okay, let, let's get back on, uh, on, on track here, Eric, and talk a little bit more about the, you mentioned the Augustinian monks. Uh, do you think that they are potentially then responsible for uh, pinning down the, the Quran, or do you think that uh, this was actually written by, a, you know, uh, an historical character like Muhammad? No, Muhammad was an illiterate. 
You couldn't write. So it was done by others, just like Mein Kampf was written by others. Hitler was not an author. He never wrote a book. He didn't have the capacity. So it's the same way with Muhammad. So it was written for Muhammad, and I'm convinced that priests of North Africa had a hand in writing it. And uh, you can find many of the tenets in the Quran to be the exact same tenets of the Roman Catholic canon law. For example, uh, the one of the tenets of Islam is that those who do not believe in the false prophet Muhammad are what are called infidels. Well, in Romanism, in uh, the teaching of the canon law, if you do not, if you're not a member of the Roman Catholic Church, if you don't believe in the false prophet, the Pope, because the Pope considers himself a prophet, if you don't believe in the Pope, you're a heretic. So what is deemed an infidel in Islam and worthy of death is deemed a heretic in canon law and worthy of death. Right. Here's another... with me there? Yeah, yeah. So here's another parallel. In Islam, they have what are called jihads. Right. And a jihad is a holy war. In Romanism, you have what are called crusades. They are holy wars. Same exact thing. In, in, in Islam, you have a man of blood founding Islam, Muhammad. Very immoral man, had many wives, illiterate. He is, uh, there's a book written, available by Chick Publications, who is talks of a former Muslim who truly converted to Christ and born again. He tells the true story about Muhammad. And you can get that from Chick Publications. But in Islam, you have Muhammad founding Islam at least openly, and in Romanism you have Constantine founding Roman Catholicism. Right, right. Remember, Roman Catholicism doesn't exist one day prior to 325 A.D. Right. Roman, Roman Catholicism was created at the Council of Nicaea through Constantine, so you have this parallel between Muhammad, Constantine, heretic, uh, uh, um, infidel, heretic, jihad, crusade. They have central cities. And with Romanism, you have Rome as a central city. In Islam, you have Mecca as a central city. Hmm. So, so these parallels are identical. And we should not be surprised, therefore, because the papacy existed almost 300 years before Islam. Islam was founded in 610 AD. Uh, Romanism was founded in 325. The first pope is Sericius, and about uh, 399 he's called pope. Um, but the first um, pope to be given universal spiritual power was in 606 with uh, Gregory. So, so you have the establishment of Romanism with all of its beginning powers and universal um, uh, spiritual power over every human creature uh, four years before the founding of Islam. And the, the, the papacy could not reach to Arabia to carry out its decrees. So cre it created what is called the second sun. Islam is the second son, uh, really, of the devil, and so Islam, being an extension of Romanism, it would carry out the essential doctrines of Rome under the guise of another religion. Hmm. Interesting. And, you know, the, the question, of course, is, and you brought this up, why, why because, again, on the surface, uh, for someone who is, you know, new to, to a subject like this, they can't get it through, you know, why would the Vatican be instrumental in creating it? an enemy of the Christian faith, because that goes, uh, you know, obviously against logic. But what you were saying, Heron, to clarify that again, is that they're using this in order to create 
uh, a, a, this this uh, dichotomy, if you will, of these warring factions. And in such a war with uh, such huge battles going on, you can consequently control populations better. You can kill off a lot of people that you're basically you want to get rid of. Is, is that correct, Eric? That's, that's correct. And the other thing we want to remember is we always must just define true Bible-based Christianity as those people who believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for their sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again and coming back. And the Bible is the final authority for faith and practice to be true Christian. Romanism, on the other hand, has never been Christian. It is not Christian. It will never be Christian. It is papal mystery Babylon religion, as I show in this uh, CD that's available that I mentioned. So Romanism is not Christian. Only true Bible-believing people who hold the Bible as their final authority, faith, and practice, like the old Lutheran Church that was so prevalent in Sweden, which gave the Swedish people victory uh, during the Thirty Years' War led by the great Gustavus Adolphus. Uh, that kind of Bible-based Christianity that Gustavus, uh, Gustavus adhered to was what made a nation great. So we, can, we must always distinguish between pagan Romanism and Bible-based, true, uh, primitive, first-century and Reformation Christianity. Mm. You know, one other thing that comes up, uh, you know, as a consequence to this, the reason why I wanted to address the background potentially of this is that this has uh, uh, progressed and continued up into to our time, so to speak. We have, of course, something called the the Muslim uh, Brotherhood, uh, and there's many authors that have written about the, the connections between the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the Nazis, and, and even progressing up from that up to Al-Qaeda. Have you looked into these connections as well, Eric? Sure. Um, to, to first talk about the Muslim Brotherhood, you must talk about the Masonic Grand Orient Lodge of Cairo and Istanbul. Those two lodges in the Near East are the most powerful Muslim lodges. Out of the Grand Lodge in Cairo comes the mother Muslim Brotherhood. And the Black Pope, the Jesuit general who controls the White Pope, Pope Benedict XVI, is the Black Pope through his army of Jesuits that controls all Freemasonry, be it Scottish Rite in the West or Grand Orient in the East, and therefore he controls all the leaders out of Grand Orient Freemasonry, which include the Islamic leaders. For example, Saddam Hussein was one. Another one was King Hussein of Jordan. Another one was Ataturk of Turkey. Another one is Muammar Gaddafi of Libya. All these Muslim leaders are high-level Grand Orient Freemasons, and thus they are controlled by the Vatican. So the Masonic connection to the Muslim Brotherhood can never be overlooked. <laughs> Second of all, we, we know that after World War II, that many of your top Nazis were were brought out of Europe by means of the Jesuits uh, using their Vatican rat lines, also called the Odessa. And uh, many of these top Nazis went into the Near East. They went into Egypt. Uh, Dilly Wanger, who was one of the heads of the Einstein groupies in uh, the East, he went into Cairo. And then you have a couple who went into Damascus. Uh, but you have these high Nazi SS officers that have gone down into these Muslim nations and aided and abetted and have been helpful in establishing the Muslim Brotherhood. We have the PLO. The PLO is led by Yasser Arafat. His uncle was Hajjim al-Husseini. He was a Freemasonic 
a hoodlum, a Muslim, who was made the uh, Grand Mufti of Jerusalem by Herbert Samuel. And Herbert Samuel was a Masonic Jew in England, in Britain, and because Britain had command of that land, breaking up the Ottoman Empire after World War One, they set up all their puppets in the new countries that they created. And one of their puppets for the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem was Haji Min al-Husseini. He was a Freemason. So the Jesuits in control of Britain and America for the entire duration of the 20th century set up all these Muslim leaders who were high-level Freemasons secretly subordinate to the Pope. Now, Eric, explain to us again and clarify for us the connection there between Freemasonry and the Vatican, because again, on the surface, a lot of people looking at this, they recognize the, the most of the Freemasonic brands, it's, it's more... Uh, clinging to a Protestant faction than a, to a Catholic one, but but explain that for us and what is the connection there? Okay, the remember that the Vatican always has an outward policy, but it is false, and then it has a secret policy, and that is the true policy. So the open policy of the papacy has, for the last two hundred years at least, been anti-Masonic that no Roman Catholic, at least till John Paul II made it okay for Roman Catholics to join the Lodge, but that no no Roman Catholic could join the Masonic Lodge or else he would be excommunicated. Yeah, yeah. That was, are you with me there? Yeah, yeah. That, that's the open policy, or was the open policy of the Vatican till John Paul II. The real policy is that the Jesuits wrote the first, first, first 25 degrees of Scottish Rite Freemasonry in 1754 in the College of Clermont in France, Paris, France. I have that documented from a Masonic source, and it's in my book. So the Jesuits, in creating Scottish Rite, the first 25 degrees, they then created the eight rites after that with Frederick the Great, when Frederick the Great, who was the head Freemason on the continent, protected the Jesuit order when Pope Clement suppressed the Jesuits with a papal bull in 1773, abolishing and extinguishing the Society of Jesus forever. And so it was Frederick II, or the Great, of Prussia, and it was Catherine II, the Great, of Russia, who were these two monarchs protecting the Jesuits during their 41-year suppression from 1773 to 1814. And during this time, the Jesuits were the masters of high-level Freemasonry, and they used their, their Grand Orient Masonic Lodge, in particular on the continent, to foment and ignite the French Revolution. Right. And, and igniting the French Revolution with Robespierre, who was Jesuit trained, the Jesuits then eliminated thousands of their enemies, including many Dominican priests, and then they... Um, they uh, brought Napoleon Bonaparte to power from Corsica. Yeah. And the Jesuits had been suppressed by the Pope. They had been expelled from South America. So some 2,000 Jesuits had been sent back from South America, from the from Paraguay and the, the, and the holdings of Portugal and Spain, because the Portuguese and the Spanish monarchs suppressed them out of their countries and out of all their holdings. So some 2,000 Jesuits were sent back to to uh, to Rome. And they then populated the island of Corsica, off the coast of France. Well, it's no, it's no coincidence that Napoleon would arise from Corsica. So 
Napoleon was the great avenger for the Jesuit order in punishing the Roman Catholic monarchs of Europe for suppressing the Jesuits, for punishing the Pope, for imprisoning Pius VII for five years until he would agree to restore the Jesuit order in 1814. And they also used Napoleon for the destruction of and many Protestants in Germany to destroy the Protestant Dutch Republic in 1806. The Jesuits accomplished many things with their great avenger, Napoleon Bonaparte, only to then ultimately betray him and poison him in St. Helena. But the connection to Freemasonry is this, that Napoleon Bonaparte was a French Grand Orient Lodge Freemason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, his, and his advisor, the second consul on the consulate, was Abbey Sias. And Abbey Sias was a Jesuit. So all the, the entire war maneuvers of Napoleon Bonaparte were dictated by Abbey Sias. As Sias was on the directory, and then he was the second consul on the consulate, the first consul being Napoleon. So this connection of masonry to the Jesuits is undeniable. Right, so we're going a little bit long in this episode, so we'll just stop right there. We're going to come back for a part two of this episode. And you can see right there that the scholarship of Eric John Phelps and his knowledge is autodidactic. It's unschooled. On some level, he's really just put a lot of this, the nuances of this occult knowledge together behind the scenes. How he is able to have the accumulation of all these facts is still kind of mysterious, but that's why he becomes a critical part of this conversation. So we have to recognize that the connection between between the Vatican and Islam is really obfuscated by the existence of secret societies. And secret societies are really unstated. And their subversive role is really undefined because you can't really tell what their agenda is, only that they have a strict system of obedience and control. But what they are trying to achieve is, is dislocated from the common understanding. So that's what we're going to try to do in our podcast is really bring you an understanding and to have the light show and reveal it to you so that you can understand what they're really trying to achieve. So with that, we'll stop this episode and we'll come back for part two. Thank you for joining.